Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or if you're listening to this at midnight, I hope that's good too. My name's Lizzie Mansfield. I'm a tiny carbon-based life form who lives on the planet Earth. It's lovely down here. You should come and visit us sometime. This podcast is Physics for Fish. Each week I find someone who really knows things about the universe, by which I mean a real physicist, and ask them the kind of questions that will blow my mind. This week, I met philosopher of physics Dr Tushar Menon to ask him how clocks keep track of all those seconds, how Einstein helped us understand the universe, and what is going on with this thing they call time. Hello Tushar! Welcome to Physics for Fish! Thank you so much for having me, Lizzie. So, who are you? What's your engagement with physics? Where did your passion for physics come from? Sure, so um, I am a, I'm a philosopher of physics, although I did, I did study physics for many years, and then sort of felt the call of the philosophers, as it were. I'm currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge, although I've spent many years talking about physics and the philosophy of physics at Oxford, which is kind of where I'm based. So we're going to have to go back to basics to sort of pinpoint exactly what time is from a human perspective, how we experience it and what these clock things are doing to help us with that. Okay, let's give this a shot. So there are two aspects to that question, right? One is how it is that we might describe our own human experience of time, what it's like to live in what seems like a world that's passing from past to present to future. A related question is the question of what our best science tells us about what time is supposed to be. And one of the things that I try to do as a philosopher of physics is to try to bridge the gap or at least identify how how big the gap is and maybe hint towards directions in which that gap might be bridged. So there are two ways of thinking about time, right? There's the the human experience of time passing and, and what that looks like from our perspective. And then there's this kind of scientific thing about time. Yes. Once you prize apart these two questions, you sort of realize that in a sense, it would be amazing if our picture of time that emerged from physics coincided exactly with our picture of time from uh, from our experiences, from our everyday experiences, right? For example, our everyday experience of time is of us having memories, right? Memories of me having woken up yesterday, woken up this morning. But physics doesn't really talk much about memories. I mean, we um, we we don't have any explicit way of modeling memories in the framework of, for example, general relativity or or quantum mechanics. And so then what we have to do is we have to start trying to prize apart the uh, sort of the very specific questions that one might have about uh, our experience of time and what aspect of those experiences are supposed to be modeled by our best physics. And I think at this point, it might be helpful to go into a thought experiment. One of the nice things about making a podcast is that you can include sound effects. I think if you were to go into a thought experiment, it would probably sound something like this. Let's imagine beings that lived in a world in which everything that was blue was also spherical and everything that was spherical was also blue. Those two properties were always, always found together in objects. Mm -hmm. Okay. So people in that world might start to put together a theory of that world and they might not be sensitive to the fact that shape and color are independent. They're logically distinct things. Why? Because one particular shape is always associated with one particular color. Round blue things. Round blue things. In fact, they might just have one word, 
for round blue things, right? So things are blound. Things are blound, indeed, or roux, um, depending <laughs> on uh, depending on whom you ask. We can call it the Bloundiverse, full of spherical skies and blue Maltesers. Or maybe the fish actually live there. So now imagine a philosopher comes along and says, look, these blound things are things that actually have two distinct properties. Now, we don't have any examples of places where these two properties come apart, but if I write down a theory in which I describe blound things as actually being things that have these combinations of these two properties, then I can generalize. I can say, well, imagine I have a thing that's, uh, that's blue, but not round. And let me try to explore what happens when I, when I construct a, a physics or a philosophy around that. And something similar is happening when we think about time. In our experience of time, we have a lot of different properties that we ascribe to time, and we have a number of different roles that time plays in our theories of physics. So here's an example. Yeah. We might have come across entropy, right? This, this thing that's supposed to be a measure of disorder. Now, if we didn't have any other theories of physics, we might be satisfied in thinking that time had no properties other than increasing in the direction of an increase in entropy. So time is nothing but, but stuff getting more and more random and more and more disordered. But of course, we have other theories of physics, right? We've got things like quantum mechanics. We've got things like relativity theory. And these theories tell us something quite different about our experience of time. Now let's think about another way in which we think about time. We think about time as being associated with clocks, right? There are these devices that tick with a certain regularity, and we use these ticks in order to quantify our passage from past into future. Yes. Now, yes. these ticks need not have anything to do with entropy. I have no idea what the entropy associated with a clock is. And yet somehow these clocks are also capturing a similar aspect of our experience of time. And now you'll end up with a wholly different idea about the role that time plays in whatever physics describes the ticking of your clocks. And so exactly like the people in the blound universe where shape and color are kind of smushed together, we live in a world in which our experience of time is kind of a mishmash of a number of conceptually distinct, logically independent roles. Like me, when you started this podcast, you probably thought that time was just one thing. And if we prodded it for long enough, we'd be able to figure out what that thing was. But the people in the Bloundiverse thought the same thing about Blue Maltesers. Now, we're used to this idea of there being quantities in the world, right? We measure things like mass and length and distance and things like that. And we've got this intuitive idea that they correspond to stuff that's out there in the world. And in particular, to stuff that would have, that would have been there, even if we hadn't existed, if the fish hadn't existed, if our measuring devices hadn't existed. Let's call that objective reality. Let's call that objective reality, yes. It makes life a whole lot easier. So do we think that there's, there must be some objective reality component of time? Well, one way that you might think about answering this sort of question is to say, if we remove this idea of time being an objective part of the world, does that break our best physics? Is the idea that time is a quantity in the world central to our physics functioning? And this is a quite interesting question to ask because there have been various sorts of proposals over the years for what you might call a timeless physics. There have been various proposals for manners in which we might remove time from our physics, but still be left with the exact same physics. You know, by analogy, you might have, you might have uh, 
a theory of economics. And you might say, okay, well, let me add to all the properties that the economists care about, the color of the ink used to write down the theory. Now, if I choose not to care about the color of the ink in which I write down that theory, am I in any way going to upset that theory of economics? And the answer is, of course, no, right? So economics doesn't care about the color of the ink used to write down the theory. We can ask a similar question about whether physics cares about whether or not we include time. Does physics care about time? Does time care about physics? And if they don't, what on earth would that mean? What is a good way of abstracting away our experience of the world in terms of our experience of time? Well, we've got memories. But what are memories? Well, memories are just the markers of, of some sorts of experiences, right? I have a memory of having started the sentence, but at this point in time, right, it's just some series of information that's encoded in something in my brain. So now you might say, okay, well, this leads to a real worry because if, I, if all I have as evidence of a past having existed is just a present configuration of my brain, what if my brain was just suddenly created at this point, memories and all, just out of thin air. Like me, when you started this podcast, you probably believed that the past really existed and wasn't just a product of your spontaneously created brain. But before giving up on time completely, it's time for you, me and the fish to delve into some wonderful physics weirdness. I hope you've got your scientific seatbelts on. Einstein kind of radically redefined how we think about time. Yes. So this is what we have pre-Einstein. We've got a few experiments that seem to be kind of a bit unhappy with the predictions from Newtonian mechanics, but you can't have everything. Mm -hmm. We've figured out the clockwork of the universe, the mechanism of the universe. Uh, and then along comes Einstein and says, ooh, hate to break this to you, Newton, <laughs> but uh, we're going to have to radically, radically rethink the way that the, that the universe works. And one of the things, the most important thing that Einstein uh, takes away is this idea that there's a universal clock kind of ticking in the background. Mm -hmm. Because implicit in our statement of Newton's laws is that there's a clock with respect to which we can define velocities, right? The first law said, if something's moving with a constant velocity, then it'll keep moving with that velocity. Yeah. Well, a velocity is just a change in distance across a certain amount of time. And now, if there's a universal conception of time, then we're in a position where we can have a universal statement of a law like uh, like Newton's first law. But without that, if we get rid of our celestial clock that hangs over everything, we can no longer make sense of Newton's first law, right? Exactly. So he tore this apart and he said, here is this new theory of time and it's radically different. Yes. So it's a two-step process to get to, to what Einstein's final word on this was. The first step is special relativity. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll come in a minute to why it's special. It's because it's a special case of a more general theory that is general relativity. And that's the second part of the story. Gotcha. Now, in special relativity, you've got this um, intuitive picture coming from Newtonian mechanics that no matter how hard I accelerate something like a ruler, uh, the length of that ruler is not going to change, whether I'm you know, at rest with respect to the ruler or moving really, really fast with respect to the ruler. Sure. And there are various reasons why it turns out that this is actually a bad assumption about the world. It just turns out that this is not the way the world behaves. So hang on, if, if we move a ruler really fast, you're telling me the ruler will shrink. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, and this is one of those things that is intuitively 
far from obvious. And it's really one of those things that took a lot of experimentation over, over a large part of the, the 18th and 19th centuries. But we have now established it, right? This is now a fact. Yes, that is, an that unquestioned is... fact. This is, there, is, there is plenty of data, you know, to the extent that we can talk about rock-solid scientific evidence. We have rock-solid scientific evidence for the claim that the faster an object moves with respect to an observer, the smaller it'll appear with respect to that observer. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the things that Einstein realized was if this is the case, then we really need a radical uh, reimagining of our relationship to space and time or what space and time are. Mm -hmm. And so he made, a, he made an educated guess. He said, look, according to Newtonian mechanics, the length of something like a ruler is invariant with respect to observers moving at different constant velocities. And invariant just means it doesn't change, right? Invariant just means it doesn't change. The, the length is, is going to be the same whether I'm running with a ruler at 100 meters per second or I drop that ruler and continue running at 100 meters per second. That ruler's length will still appear the same to me. Yeah. Now, as it turns out, this in fact doesn't happen. But what Einstein conjectured was the following. He said, look, instead of taking the length of a ruler to be the thing that's invariant across observers moving at different velocities, mm -hmm. what if we take the velocity of light to be the invariant across um, um, observers moving in at, at different velocities. And you think, well, that's that's incredibly weird. Yes. Because that is very much not the experience that we have of the way velocities behave in the world, right? Yeah. If I'm moving with respect to a bus that's uh, that's stationary, well then, if the bus starts moving the opposite direction, with respect to that bus, I'm now moving at a higher velocity than I was when that bus was at rest, right? This seems completely basic and standard and uncontroversial. But Einstein says, well, no, light is different. Its velocity is completely independent of the velocity of the source. So imagine I'm, I've got a torch in my hand and I'm sort of sitting still and I flick it on, the light leaves that torch at a particular velocity. Mm -hmm. You might think that if I ran with, uh, alongside that torch, alongside that torch beam at a, you know, a sufficiently high speed, then I would measure the speed of light to be lower because I'm, you know, I'm moving in the same direction. Yeah. Turns out that that's not true. Turns out that that's not the way in which light behaves. So if you're hurtling along beside a light beam, regardless of the speed of your spaceship, the light will always be charging ahead of you at exactly the same rate. Keep this in mind when you're off on your cosmic adventures. It doesn't matter how hard you're trying, you're never going to catch that light. And so it turns out that when you make these two assumptions, and these are experimentally very well confirmed assumptions, then you have to completely rethink the manner in which space and time exist and interact in our new theory of physics, in our theory of special relativity. So, so just like the ruler shrinking when you're running really fast with it, presumably something similar happens to clocks. That's exactly right. If you notice, we've now shifted from talking about the length of a ruler being invariant to a velocity being invariant. And what that means is there's some quantity that's related to both space and time that is rendered invariant by the special theory of relativity. And so the very fact that we've got an invariant velocity means that space and time are together kind of mixing in this highly interesting and highly non-trivial way. And so this is the, this is the, the, the really earth-shattering breakthrough of Einstein's special theory of relativity. This idea that space and time are not these independent aspects of our physical theorizing, right? It's not, space is not just that thing that's measured by rulers and time that thing that's measured by clocks. No, no. 
what we have is in fact this thing that we call space-time and this thing that we call space-time has these really interesting properties some of which are, uh, are measured by things like rulers other of which are measured by things like clocks but there's no non-trivial way in which we can separate these two these two aspects of our physical theorizing there you have it the fabric of reality is neither time nor space but a huge cosmic blanket built from both of them at least we think it is for now we've talked about shrinking rulers wobbly clocks and the nature of reality but have we really answered the question, what is time? Well, where it gets a little bit more troubling for the kind of person who wants a sort of simple one sentence answer to the question, what is time, is that it has to be indexed not just to observers, but also to particular theories. And in addition to particular length scales and energy scales as well. This is a kind of standard thing that happens actually when we start asking what is X type questions. We very rarely end up with an answer that's a kind of unequivocal this is what it is once and for all, for everyone, forever. Instead, we end up with what I think some people see as a bit of a cop-out. We end up with an answer more along the lines of, well, relative to a particular set of considerations or conventions, we, you know, we have a story that we can tell. Instead of saying, what is time? You say, well, with respect to the theory of thermodynamics, what sorts of inferences, what sorts of uh, facts can we derive about time? from accepting this theory. Or with respect to a particular length scale, how is it that we ought to conceive of time in this theory, right? Or as Einstein showed us, with respect to this observer, how should we think about you know, their experience of uh, velocities? And those are all perfectly well-formed questions that have perfectly straightforward answers from within particular theories. And of course, having that is, is, is an amazing thing because it really does lead to a, to a sort of a very deep understanding of the world. But I think this idea that we're going to have a kind of once and for all answer to the question, to any of these what is X type questions is I think much more of a pipe dream than, 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 than anything that we have sort of good reason to believe will emerge either from physics or from philosophy. It's a great lesson to learn when you're sitting down to do some serious thinking. Sometimes you get straightforward answers. Sometimes you just find out which questions to ask. I think really the, the way to approach this is to think, well, I want a theory of time. I want an understanding of time that makes sense of, for example, the fact that I remember things in the past and I don't remember things in the future. But you might ask another question. You might want to ask a question about uh, how time figures in eggs not unscrambling and the like. And in that case, again, we've got a very, very tightly constrained way of asking the question. And I think the lesson to draw from, from this conversation is the questions that we're in positions to answer are actually quite local, local in the sense of uh, with respect to a domain that our particular, phys particular physical theories are designed to, to give us answers to. So from the fish's perspective, then, we can't necessarily tell them anything about time because our conception of time and everything we know about this concept or this this idea is pretty localized well so one thing we can say for certain is that our conception of time as it emanates from thermodynamics applies certainly to you know a large chunk of our universe um but it doesn't for example mean that the arrow of time or our experience of time is going to be the same across large large chunks of the universe can you imagine a species, for example, the fish, 
who experience time very differently from us. And is there a possibility that they're not experiencing time in the way we are at all? Oh, absolutely. Part of the worry might be that if, if their experience of time is radically different from ours, we might end up in a situation where it's, it's, sort of, it's not possible to, to you know, live in their shoes. As, oh, well, I don't know if they wear <laughs> shoes. You know, for all we know, they might live in a pocket of the universe in which the direction of time as quantified by things like entropy increase don't coincide with the quantities of time that are measured by clocks. So that's, that's one particular example, right? So what would that look like for the fish? How would, how would if we try and get behind the fish's gills, if they have gills, <laughs> how would they experience that kind of a picture? Well, so the most, uh, the most straightforward suggestion might be that in that world, their eggs unscramble spontaneously, their, their tea, <laughs> uh, sort of their tea and their coffee spontaneously demix. You know, there are various sorts of things that we associate with time moving forward in our world that are explicitly linked to facts about entropy. But there might be others. They might have memories of what we might call the future. They might, uh, they might be surprised to discover things about the past. There's any number of ways in which I think their experience might be different from ours. From my perspective, we're coming to the end of this podcast. But if time's arrow points in the other direction for you, it may just be the start. So to cover all bases, here's the whole thing again, but backwards. That was the first episode of Physics for Fish. A huge thank you to Tushar for being my special guest this week. Join me next time, where I talk about the beginning of the universe with Dr. Katie Clough. Until then, stay cheerful and keep on thinking. Goodbye.